details of my life are quite inconsequential. Read my lips. If you have sex, your penis will fall off and land in another dimension populated entirely by dogs who will eat it. Well, that's something I'd like to avoid. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I'm a paladin with 18 charisma and 97 hit points. I can use my helm of disintegration and do 1d4 damage as my half-elf mage wields his plus five holy avenger. And as president, I'm going to make it impossible for congressmen or lobbyists to slip pork barrel projects or corporate welfare into laws when no one's looking. Because when I'm president, meetings where laws are written will be more open to the public. No more secrecy. That's a commitment I make to you as president. The Michael Graff Show. It is my opinion he is a danger to himself and others and is in need of treatment. Some people are just too stubborn to know when to quit. And this guy just happens to be one of them. He's been beaten down repeatedly by God's practical jokes. He's been banished to the deepest, darkest corners of the internet. From somewhere in desert Urbania, this is Michael Groff in Exile. The first show of the new year. And 2009 sucked. Thank God that's over with. That's one year and one decade I could have done without. Thanks. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, welcome in. It is Michael Graff in Exile broadcasting to you here on this uh, January the 5th. 2010. I have to get used to that. Yes, 2010. We do this show from America's fifth largest city, Phoenix, Arizona. Our contact information, if you want to uh, get in touch with this program. Well, you know how to do it. It's mike at kmgx.com. That's my email address, mike at kmgx.com. Or, of course, for more instant gratification, AOL Instant Messenger, Michael Groff Show, the screen name. All of our contact information and more is available at... MichaelGroff.com So I don't know, it's a new year I'm trying to have a new start We're trying to put that horrible year that was 2009 behind us You know, everybody had their year in review I was going to do, you know, every year I try I always have it in planned to do a year in review show where I go through some of the stories, some of the things from my own personal life, whatever. We sort of integrate it all into the uh, year in review and play some relevant clips and do all that kind of stuff. But this year, since I didn't do a show for the last three months of the year, basically, three and a half months, and plus I didn't have access to all the archives necessarily, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Plus, it was just, I, I was not in any kind of mood or condition to do so. 
So that just, that really wasn't going to happen. But we are into a new year. And you know, I, I have to tell you, um, just on a personal note, man. 2009, uh, that was, it was maybe the worst year of my life. And it, really the whole decade from 2000 to 2009, the whole decade, I, I just basically sucked. And I, I, I'm just thinking about all the crap that went down that entire decade. It was, it was bad news. There was a lot of bad in there. So um, I'm personally glad it's behind me, but hopefully, and I'm hoping things will kind of improve. Just as sort of a capper to the year, so I have to tell you this. I know people are going to say, oh, here he goes. He's talking about his personal life, talking about himself. Hey, it's my podcast. It's my show. This is a this is my own personal therapy session. Since I can't afford a psychologist, this is how I have to divest myself of what's on my mind. Though uh, I, I have to be aware of the fact that some people will smatter my Facebook with "You're being emo." More on that in a second. But so yeah, so a New Year's Eve. This is how. This is just a microcosm of the year. So New Year's Eve, I go out and about eight o'clock and I, I had said uh, to one of my friends, I said, you know, they said to me, they said, well, we want to go out, but we want to just kind of hang out someplace kind of quiet, kind of chill, you know, to bring in the new year to turn over a page on the calendar. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of down with that too. I'm kind of uh, all right with the idea of just going someplace and hanging out and it being kind of just quiet. So we went over to a, a friend's house. Um, there was, there was going to be a little party there starting about 8 o'clock. So we got there at, well, about 8 o'clock. And um, just there was a few people there and then a few more showed up, a bunch of people I didn't really know. But uh, I was eating pizza and party mix and chips and I had a few beers and it was fine. But then about 10 o'clock, everybody said, yeah, we're going to go over to this bar we're going to go to some bar, uh, some place I had never heard of. It was down on anybody that's familiar with Phoenix. It was down on Roosevelt, um, like 7th or 16th and Roosevelt. Anyway, it was down in and around that area. It was in the ghetto. Let's just put it that way. It was part of old Phoenix. And this was a bar that was like a, I think the name of it was Lost Leaves or Lost, I don't know, Last Leaves, whatever it was. I, I don't remember. Anyway, it was some little dinky place that used to be a house that they turned into a bar, if you can imagine. So it was a tiny little place and it was filled with people. It was just, it was people everywhere. And so we got there and it was loud. They had a band in there playing some brass, you know, some sort of swing kind of band. I mean, they had, they had bass and guitar, but they also had like trumpets or they had, well, they had, um, yeah, like somebody had a trombone and I don't know, they had some other stuff going on. So whatever. And it was loud. The acoustics of this place just made it very, very loud. It was crammed with people. It was like a zillion degrees in there. And it was just, it was horrible. I, I, the, when we got there, I'm standing there for... 35 minutes, I'm standing in the same place. You can't even move because there's wall-to-wall -wall people. You're getting shoved out of the way, people trying to get to the bar. And it was just a, a miserable experience. So immediately, I'm already trying to plot my escape out of there. I'm thinking, well, let's see. I've got $50 in my pocket. I'll just take a cab home. 
I mean, if uh, if everybody else is drinking or too drunk or unwilling to take me out of there, I, I'm I'll just get a cab and get the hell out because this is not how I want to spend uh, the last moments of an otherwise crappy year. But then I thought, well, gee, it's apropos. It was a it was a crappy year, so why not end it in a miserable fashion? But no, really, it was it was bad. So another one of my friends was just kind of in the same boat I was. It was just miserable, and um, we're like, let's. His girlfriend really wanted to get out of there too, so we're like, all right, let's bail. So I got home, this just tells you, I got home at about 11.15 p.m. New Year's Eve. And I'm sitting here and um, then I'm alone and I just have time to sort of reflect on the year that was and the decade that was. And I think about it, I'm just getting really depressed, man. I'm just getting really bummed out. And I've been dealing with my own depression for several months now, for quite a while. And I'm just thinking about it. I'm like, you know what's sad is, I'm no closer to my goals in life than I was on January 1st, 2000. Here it is, December 31st, 2009. I'm further away from my goals than I was 10 years ago. And, and it just made, it just bummed me out. And uh, I was, I don't know, I was just really down. And then I'm, I'm, I don't know, the next day I'm sitting there, I'm talking to some, oh, no, and the other thing is, so then I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm already depressed. So I'm like, well, let's watch the new year come in. So I, I see Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. And if seeing Ryan Seacrest's ugly mug up there isn't enough to bum me out, then you got to see a stroked out Dick Clark, you know, ringing in the new year. And I, we've talked about this on the show in years past, the last couple of years, uh, what, three years that we've talked about this now. And, and this is not me being insensitive at all. I love Dick Clark. Growing up, I remember watching him on 25 and $100,000 Pyramid. And uh, I remember, you know, episodes of American Bandstand when they used to show them on VH1. And I mean, I've seen, and, and I know a lot about Dick Clark from, you know, he was in the music biz uh, from a lot in the 50s and 60s. I mean, the guy was a... He's got, he's just got a license to print money and he's had beauty pageants. He's had so many things going on in his life. And here you see this guy that can now, he can barely talk. And I know he worked with a speech therapist and he's a little bit better this year than he was the last couple of years, but it was still bad. And then he couldn't even count down from 20 very well. And, 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 and again, it's not, it's not that I'm making fun of the guy. I, I, I feel bad for him. I really do. And I mean, listen, he doesn't need me to feel bad for him. I understand that. But I, I felt, I was already bummed out enough. And then I'm seeing, I'm thinking, people are having New Year's Eve parties and they put this on and here they see a stroked out guy counting down the new year. I mean, that's, that's got to bum you out for a party. It's got to bring you down. It's got to make you sad. And, and I'm already sad as it is. And I'm sitting here seeing a, a guy that's, that's 80 years old, 80, how old is Dick? He's, he's like 81, right? Or something like that. Anyway, and here he is, um, barely able to articulate himself. I mean, he's, it's not that he's not even cognizant. He knows, he just can't get the words out. And it's bad when you're a broadcaster. And, you know, as I, I've made the joke, I think this is probably the third or fourth year in a row I've made the joke. I don't know why Ryan Seacrest couldn't be the guy to get the stroke. You know, of of the two, if I had to choose one, there there would be it would be Ryan Seacrest, and uh, you know, Dick Clark's sort of giving him the giving him the business there. He's kind of kind of teasing Ryan Seacrest, and and I Dick Clark's got to be a little bit pissed off because 
this was his show. And now he's got kind of Ryan Seacrest steering him along and saying, all right, now we now we go to our, um, and Ryan Seacrest, by the way, I'm sure he has a vagina. There's no doubt in my mind Ryan Seacrest has a vagina. I, I'm, I'm positive of this. I've heard his morning show before. There's no way that guy has a penis. But anyway, so then I, I'm watching this and I see him do the, you know, he does the, the mandatory, the obligatory throw it to Dick Clark to count down. And every once in a while, oh, we're going to check in with the man himself, Dick Clark. And meanwhile, Ryan Seacrest has got to be sitting there going, man, why do we have to throw it to this stroked out jackass? I'm sure that's what Ryan Seacrest is sitting there thinking. And then he's like, eh, whatever, you know. But Dick Clark's losing his, uh, his, his empire there to, to guys like Ryan Seacrest. He's like, yeah, you son of a bitch. I'm alive. I, if I could only articulate myself, if, if only I didn't have this stroke, you wouldn't even be here. You wouldn't even be here. You'd be on Kiss FM counting down the new year. You know, maybe the guys at Fox would have you counting down the new year. You know, you could have your American Idol shirt on. You ass. But yeah, I don't know. Dick Clark, I, I, I feel really bad. So sort of a side tangent. But so anyway, I'm sort of, I'm dealing with my, uh, with my, with my issues still, obviously. It was just a, a really tough year for me, a tough decade. You know, I lost my father in the last decade. A lot of uh, death in the family, uh, personal loss, uh, relationships, that all uh, sort of went bad and I'm alone on New Year's. It was, it's so, it bummed me out. And, and I was talking to somebody in the IRC channel and they said, you know, like maybe you just should, you ought to see a therapist. You know, you ought to go see somebody, see a psychologist or something. And, um, you know, I, I've really, I've thought about this for a while. And initially I, I was going to go see a psychologist like in October. I, I really thought about it. I was, I was going to go and do that. And then I, I sort of thought to myself, well, wait a minute. I know what's wrong with me. I know what my problems are. I don't need to pay somebody $175 an hour for them to tell me what my problem, because I know what's wrong with me. And here's the other thing. I know what I need to make myself happy. I know what, what is required in my life to have fulfillment. And I know somebody will say to, well, you know, you should just be happy anyway. You should be able to find your own happiness from within or whatever. You know, people say that. But there's certain things that every human being needs, or at least there's certain things. I don't know about everybody else, but there's certain things that I need. And they're very limited. It's not like I need a million bucks and I, I don't need a fancy car, a break house or anything like that. I don't need any of that. I, there's just a couple of very basic things that I want and need to make me happy. The only thing I don't know is how to get there. That's all I don't, I don't know that. I know everything else though. I know what I want and need and I know what's wrong with me, but I don't know how to get between where I'm at now and what I need and what, you know, and how to get what I need or, you know, or I don't know how to get what I need. I know what I need. I just don't know how to get there. I guess that's sort of the bottom line to all this. And then I've been thinking about a lot of other things too. I've been thinking about this and I, I, I said, you know, maybe this is a great opportunity for me to just press the great big reset button on life, you know, get kind of a start over point. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm looking at my Facebook page the other day and, you know, trying to talk to the millionth person. Yeah, well, let me just backtrack a little bit. 
So while I'm sitting here on New Year's and uh, I'm just sort of genuflecting on all this stuff, I, I, I'm really been thinking about who my real friends are, who's, you know, um, who I can count on, that kind of stuff. And I've really come to a lot of conclusions about all that. And so then I'm looking at my Facebook page and I'm just like, well, this would be a great time to just start over. And I'm thinking about this. I, I just, maybe I should just delete my Facebook and MySpace accounts. And I'm really giving serious consideration to this. Deleting that and just handpicking a few people that I want as my friends on there. And it's, by the way, this would not be a snub to the people that are my friends on Facebook because just about everybody that's a friend of mine on Facebook, I know who they are. There's a couple of people I, I really genuinely don't know them. But for the most part, I know who they are. Um, most of the people that are my friends on Facebook are fans. They're fans. That's not to say they're not also friends. I mean, I would consider some of them friends. And then some of them I would consider fans. Now, every single person that's on my Facebook page, pretty much, I would have over to my house. You know, I would, I would have them over. I would have beer with them or I would go out and hang out with them and stuff. So it's not a personal snub. My MySpace, on the other hand, like half of those people, I have no idea who they are. Um, another like 30%, I know who they are, but I'm, you know, I don't talk to them anymore or I don't care to talk to them anymore or whatever. And then the others are just sort of like, I don't know. They're people that I already talked to anyway. So, so I've just thought about this. Maybe I should just delete it. And then the people that I, that I really want to talk to, I'll talk to. And then the other people, if they are really my friends or they really still have an interest in talking to me which clearly based on the fact that most of them don't message me back when I, when I send the messages, they don't. So, you know, they can call me. So I'm thinking maybe I should just delete this and get away from all that social networking BS. And then the other thing is, is when I post stuff on there, then I got a couple of jackasses that'll write things like, ah, you're just being emo and you're an idiot or whatever. And I don't need that. That's just, that's stupid. You know, it's like, well, thanks for diminishing, um, reducing my personal problems to, hey, Mike, you're being emo. Shut up. Which is ostensibly what a couple people wrote. And I thought that was kind of insensitive. But, you know, um, that's fine. I Look, it is what it is. So, and I didn't say anything about it at the time. I'm saying something about it now only because my, I'm going through my thought process right here, a very stream of consciousness type of thinking. And I'm, I'm saying, I think maybe it's time to delete some of that. And whoever wants to call and talk to me will, and whoever doesn't won't. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm thinking of specific people right now in particular that never messaged me back anyway. So, you know, screw them. Um, so whatever. I, I'm, I'm sort of like, just, I don't know. I, I'm really kind of soured on, on a lot of things right now. Yeah, so to recap, 2009 started out kind of rocky in my personal life and then it got good and it actually got great and then it as great as it got it turned absolutely horrible it got just incredibly horrible and it just kept getting worse and um you know and i mean look uh professionally it was the same situation it was just bad and it just kept getting worse I mean, look, I'm doing podcasts, right? I'm not even doing a live show. I mean, technically, I can still do a live show, but since I was unceremoniously ousted from the network that I was a part of, which is something that a lot of you, I'm sure, are aware, um, since I was sort of unceremoniously ousted, I, I'm 
here doing these podcasts and uh, I, I do have a server to, to have a station and everything, but I, I don't know. It's, that's a mess too. And if I could, I would get off the internet. I would, uh, I would love to have uh, my syndicated show going on, um, you know, some terrestrial affiliates. But uh, at this point, that has not happened. And, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody's sitting there right now. I'm sure, you know, uh, well, Mike, I can't imagine why a show where you're talking about your personal life and your personal struggles wouldn't uh, draw a syndicated audience, why it wouldn't necessarily have broad-based appeal in uh, 50 markets. I get it. But that's not all I do on this show. But it, listen, this is this is my own sort of personal time capsule. I, I treat this show as as my own sort of personal blog in a sense. Um, I've always sort of treated it that way. It's a way for me to divest myself about things that I find in the news that I'm interested in. Plus, I mean, I do want to be entertaining and I certainly do want to have an audience and I certainly do want to talk about stuff that you're interested in, which is why I'm always throwing it open to suggestions. I'm just saying that this this show is, it's about me as well. It's about sort of um, getting a lot of things out there. Like, for example, I don't know how many of you have really been following, but uh, I got to tell you, my initial reaction, and, and we really haven't talked about this. I, I didn't do a couple of shows late last week. Again, it was just depressing, and I, I was very just tired, and, and there was just a lot of circumstances, so I couldn't do shows, and I just didn't really get up the motivation and the gumption to do them. And I do, listen, I apologize for that, by the way. Um, I, I know that many of you are, you know, looking forward to some of these shows, uh, the people that tune in. And I know that, um, you know, you're kind of wondering what's going on. And I, I, I want to get these things out there. It's just sitting down and, and doing it. And I'm going to try and keep up a, a, a regular daily schedule. And I'm sure this show, this show is going to be huge. It's going to be long. We were already, you know, we're already 22 minutes in here thereabouts and so i have a feeling we're going to be well over an hour on this podcast so but anyway uh many of you i'm sure have been following some of the recent developments in the uh this abdul matalib this terrorist that tried to blow up northwest airlines flight 253 from amsterdam to detroit and uh, some of the um, some of the ways the government has sort of been trying to steer this story and sort of take away from the events that actually happened on the plane. They're also, I think, uh, we're really shirking responsibility here. And if somebody doesn't get fired over this, it's a real travesty of justice. Uh, again, I, I I have to tell you, we have to get into this more. But Jenna Napolitano should not have a job. Somebody should get fired over the fact that they screwed up big time on this, okay? There was, there was some major screw-ups going on. Some people really need to lose their jobs over this issue. Some people really need to get fired over the fact that we let a guy that was on terrorist watch lists, a guy that was reported by his own father to the CIA and to a U.S. embassy in Nigeria that he was a terrorist, a guy that had a lot of red flags, a lot of warning flags all around him, and yet he's still allowed to get on planes that are flying into our land, our airspace. How is this happening? And then Obama is issuing an edict, and he's saying, well, uh, 
you know, uh, you guys, uh, uh, foreign airports need to do X, Y, and Z. And they're saying, uh, no, Mr. Obama, we're not going to follow your edict. We're doing it our way. Thanks. And, um, but I mean, right after this whole thing went down, I mean, you had, you had the head of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, the former governor of the state of Arizona, a person I warned you about, a person I said would be a total disaster as Homeland Security chief. And what did she say right after this happened? What was the first thing she said? The system worked. She was asked about what happened and she said the system worked. Really? The system worked? There was a fire on board the aircraft. They had to put it out. And then the passengers subdued the guy before he could finish blowing himself up, before he could finish the job. And you're saying the system worked. Well, if by the system worked, you mean that, yes, passengers subdued the guy, they brought him to the floor and they kicked his ass. Well, then, yes, the system worked, Janet. But if you by the system worked, you mean you guys did your job and kept the guy off the plane in the first place, then no, it was a colossal failure the system worked. And then she tried to spin it around. She tried to say, well, I was taken out of context. Yeah, sure you were. Sure. See, this again, this goes to the top. You know, everybody wanted to blame Bush after 9-11. And there was blame to go around. There was the Clinton administration who didn't apprehend Osama bin Laden when they had the opportunity on at least three, if not four separate occasions. Okay. You had Bush administration that was ignoring memos from uh, Michael Williams of the CIA. I'm sorry, the uh, FBI. You had the FBI, Michael Williams, the, the Phoenix office memo that was ignored about, uh, this was in July of 2001 when you had, they said, uh, yeah, we have uh, terrorists that are training here in the United States. They're flying planes around, but they're not taking, they're taking training how to take off and how to fly planes, but not how to land them. And we have reason to believe that they're going to use aircraft as weapons. And that was ignored. It, if it was not ignored, it just wasn't taken seriously or it wasn't properly investigated, whatever the case, you had people upset at the Bush administration over it. Well, then how come we're not hearing the same criticism of the Obama administration here when clearly you had the Homeland Security chief say the system worked when we know it didn't? Somebody needs to lose their job. If you screwed up like that at your job, you'd probably get fired. And nobody, unless, I mean, for many of you, that work at a job, it's not necessarily life or death. You know, I mean, if you work at a Starbucks or you're working at, uh, you know, you're working in a restaurant or you're working at, uh, you know, a, a, a retail outlet or something, it's not necessarily life or death. You're an office manager. It's not life or death if you don't do your job right. Yeah, some bad things can happen. But here, you're talking about letting people on a plane and then... What we're doing now is we're doing a completely reactionary type of measures. We're, now we're going to put in 130 scanners in airports across the country. We're going to violate laws. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put scanners in that won't, even stop, that won't even stop the terrorist activities that they're put in to prevent. In other words, this guy, you know this guy that got on with these explosives? These, these scanners that we're now putting in at airport, these body imaging scanners, you know they're not going to stop. They're not able to detect the kind of chemicals that this guy brought on the plane. You do know that, right? So all of this uh, money that we're going to be spending, all these uh, scanners that we're putting in, they're useless. 
all they can do, uh, I mean, great. We're going to be able to see, we're going to be able to have guys, uh, people screening. Uh, they're going to be able to see your, your junk. They're going to be able to see your genitals. That's great. I mean, I'm glad that we're investing all this uh, so that we can have some free um, peep shows at the airport for the TSA folks, because that's all it is. You know, these kinds of uh, chemicals that this guy brought on, those things, those body imaging scanners, they don't see them because those chemicals are not dense enough to be detected. You know, I've have, I have a great idea. Maybe what we should do at airports, we should probably do, uh, why don't we take a page from Israeli Air, uh, from uh, El Al, which is the Israeli um, airliner. You know what they do? They do racial profiling. Well, they just do profiling in general. And if they see people that they think might be suspicious, they pull them off to the side. I know that's not necessarily politically correct. I know that that's, ooh, we can't be doing that because that might be singling people out. Yeah, that's what you do. In every one of these terrorist attacks, the common theme is Middle Eastern men between the ages of 16 and 40. How many times have we pointed this out? And how many, t it's like 100% of the time, that's who it is. So maybe that's who we ought to start singling out. And if you got a problem with that, tough. You know, it's like when the FBI does an investigation on, on you know, one of the 10 most wanted criminals or whatever, they don't, they don't take 80-year-old women and put them off to the side and, and interrogate them. But that's what we're doing here. And, you know, these scanners uh, in some states... These scanners violate child pornography laws. Like if you had children going through these uh, body imaging scanners, in some states they violate child porn laws. That's huge. Wow. All right. Uh, anyway, I just, I had to mention this. So uh, this is another case where the, the administration does need to be given some crap about this. They do need to be given some blame. When I first heard the story and before I got all the information, I sort of was willing to, you know, give a lot of people a pass, but you can't give people a pass on this. There are people that need to lose their jobs over this. And by the way, they won't. Janet Napolitano is still going to have her job. She's not going to be reprimanded. She's not going to be fired. Nobody's going to even give her a stern talking to. No, but that's not going to happen. They're all going to keep their jobs and everybody is just going to sort of go on about their business. Well, now we know what to do. We're going to overreact and we're going to, we're going to make it so you can't have electronics on a plane and you can't use the bathroom in the last hour of the flight. That's how we're going to, we're going to fight terrorism by making it so you can't go to the bathroom in the last hour of the flight and that you can't have blankets or get access to your carry-on bags in the last hour. That'll, that'll stop terrorism. I'm sure Al-Qaeda right now is going, well, crap, there goes all of our plans. They won't let us go to the bathroom in the last hour. I tell you, we're, we're sunk. We're done for. Are you kidding? I mean, really? Oh, man. Man, are we in trouble. I mean, if that's the best we got, if that's seriously, if that's, if that's the best we can do, then we've got, we've got some real problems. Oh, man. All right. Also on the show, I want to get into it. I want to talk about um, more government news. I love how, you know, we, I, I still have to, it's great that we have this new intro for the show 
and we play that part of the Obama campaign speech where he talks about the government will be open. We're going to have a transparent government, no secrecy. Well, as it turns out, that's great because it's very fitting because right now, as we speak, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, they're having secret meetings about getting this health care bill all lined up so that it can pass through both houses smoothly. I thought we were going to have a transparent government. I thought that's what we were promised. And uh, by the way, um, let's point out that it was just a couple of years ago where Nancy Pelosi said, this is the most ethical Congress. This is going to be the most ethical Congress ever because we're we're the majority party now. This We do things ethically. We do things differently. Really? You do things ethically? Okay. Secret meeting sets... That's looking good. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to break here. Oh, I got we've got a lot of other stuff too. A judge that's out of control. We got an out of control judge. I love this story. And and just a lot of other stuff. The Michael Graff show stupid news file. And uh, a lot more. Oh, and Rush Limbaugh Rush Limbaugh in the hospital over the uh, over the holiday he went into the hospital for chest pain and we have other Rush Limbaugh related news oh my god and this this is just news that makes me mental too I'll have to talk about it it's Michael Groff in exile gonna take a break and come back more coming up folks in exile for a Tuesday, January 5th, 2010. Yeah. New Year, same dopey show. I would use that drop that we used to have where it actually says that. New Year, same dopey show in the fancy announcer. But um, we don't have the... I mean, the drops are right here. They're on this machine right here, but unfortunately, it can't get on my network, so I can't pull those off of there. 
and the drivers aren't installed. There's just a whole bunch wrong with that thing. I don't know, man. I, whatever. Maybe this year I'll get it fixed. Maybe not. You want to get in touch with the show, you can know how to do it. The contact information, Mike at KMGX.com, the email address. Also, all of our contact information is available at MichaelGroff.com. And right now I still have my Facebook account, so you can always go there. I'm... Again, you know, first of all, I'm not even really that active on either MySpace or Facebook. As a matter of fact, I didn't log on to MySpace for over a year. And then sometime in November, I, I went on there. I finally got my password, and I don't know. I went on, and... But Facebook, I I don't know. Whatever. I talked about it in the first segment. So, enough with that. All right, so I have to mention this. This is kind of interesting. This would be the point where I would normally play the uh, Rush Limbaugh music, but our edited down version, the version that's actually Rush, you know, the, the way that it's done on that show, that's on the other machine also. I mean, we could play the, the regular version just to give you this Rush Limbaugh update. Here, let me see. You know what I just did too? I, I even... Because how I normally get to things so quickly, the reason I'm able to play sound bites and music so quickly is that I, I have this thing set up. So I just hit J, which which will jump to an item, an element. And I, I just hit J and then I typed in Rush Limbaugh. And of course, it came up blank because that's not on this machine right here. I have like, I still have a couple of machines. Like over here, I got the machine that's running uh, the station. And I don't even know how many people listen to that. Probably nobody. And then over here, I've got this machine that I'm recording uh, this episode of the show on. And uh, I'm playing all the bumpers and all the uh, effects and everything on that as well. Um, so we're just sort of, um, and I'm, I'm, I've got a, a, a whole complicated thing here. So anyway, let me see if I, uh, if I remember how to do this. All right, here's, here it is. So yeah, I have to give you this Rush Limbaugh update. So over the holiday... Mr. Limbaugh, he um, apparently had some chest pains, so he went into the hospital, I guess, having some heart issues or something. Although nothing serious, Limbaugh is going to be back on the air before long. But the more interesting story that's in my uh, my own stack of stuff, ladies and gentlemen, conversationalists, this just drove me crazy. Yeah, Rush Limbaugh was in Hawaii for the uh, for like a winter vacation. By the way, he has this is the worst music. I was I was forget. You know, I am doing this podcast. I mean, I could actually just sit here and curse, but I so rarely do. Like, I sit here, I try to do a professional broadcast, but this is really the shittiest song ever. I mean, first of all, the Pretenders, she's so, Chrissy Hind is so liberal. And I just think that's so bizarre that Rush Limbaugh would have this as his theme song. Somebody who's such a, a, a complete liberal, a nutcase like Chrissy Hind and the Pretenders, to have this for your theme song would just, just seems really weird.
really been a been, been a huge fan. But anyway, so this song distracts me every time too. The weird story. Let me see. It's it's here. Um, some magazine. Media Week. Some magazine called Media Week. I'd never heard of it, but they gave Rush Limbaugh the award of personality of the decade. I I, I saw that and I, I couldn't believe it. Radio personality of the decade. Let me see. Here's... Just kind of fun. Here it is. Rush Limbaugh has been named radio personality of the decade by Media Week which is a leading industry magazine and website. In the December issue, they have the best of the decade feature. Let me see what else they have in here. Um, quote, no radio host or personality comes close to Rush Limbaugh in size of audience or volume of political discourse. The man manages to stay in the headlines no matter who's in the White House or who's gunning for him. That's their commentary. The publication noted that uh, Senator Harry Reid sent a letter to Limbaugh's syndicator criticizing a remark that Rush Limbaugh uh, Oh, and, and you know, he sent a letter to the syndicator, you know, EIB, and then Limbaugh turned around and auctioned that letter on eBay and donated the money to charity. So he says, uh, of course, Limbaugh says that it's all the opposition that continues to fuel him. Quote, Limbaugh remains cleared on 600 radio stations. His audience falls somewhere between 14 and 20 million weekly listeners. And syndicator Premier Radio Networks pulls in an estimated $50 million in annual ad revenue. A recent CBS Infinity Fair poll found that um, he's the most popular conservative voice. And not even, there's not a politician, there's not anybody that comes close, according to them, according to Media Week. I have to ask a really honest question here. If maybe I don't even know how to put this. If Rush Limbaugh is the radio personality of the decade, then what does that say about radio? How bad is radio? If he's and again, I, I this is a weird dichotomy for me, okay? Because I respect what the guy has been able to do. Okay, he's been able to build an empire. He was a failed top 40 DJ. He started, uh, sort of reinvented a show where he talked about politics. And there are a million guys doing that, but they were all doing it badly. And I guess he did it a little bit differently. And he had bits and parodies and stuff back in the 80s when he started doing his show. And even in the 90s for a while. And so the show was somewhat innovative or at least somewhat creative at the time. Whether you really cared for his opinions or not, whether you cared for his politics or not, yeah. And he certainly rose to prominence. And I have to give props to anybody in the radio biz who's able to parlay 
uh, what they had into such a huge career like Rush Limbaugh has been able to do. And other guys have done it too. Sean Hannity's done it. Glenn Beck has done it. There's a lot of guys in radio that have uh, that have a, a fairly successful syndicated career. Of course, Rush Limbaugh has one of the biggest. And he still pulls some pretty good ratings. And anybody that has a 20-some year, 22, 23-year track record of syndicated success in radio... Whether you can't stand the guy or not, whether you like his politics, you hate him, whether, whether you like the guy personally or not, that you still have to give at least some degree of props, some degree of respect to somebody that's able to do that in this business. And let me tell you something. It's hard to hold an audience. It's hard to do a show in the radio biz anymore. Think about it. Think about to be a host in the radio biz. You have to fight through a lot of things. Number one, the commercials. As a listener, as a host, it's hard to fight around the commercials. You're trying to weave in your bits. You're trying to weave in your thoughts around endless interruptions of local news and weather and a bunch of crap that people don't care about. And then commercials, which of course are paying the bills, but you know, then there's all the other local content and promotions and other crap that you have to deal with as a host, whether it's locally or, or nationally. Now you have to worry about PPM, which is the new rating system that they have in radio. It's called the, the people meter. And it's a more sort of instantaneous look at how ratings are, are measured. So there's constant pressure to be captivating and to be interesting and, and to hold down that audience. You have to keep it moving along, you know. And it's hard to do. It's hard. And with PPM, they're finding out that a lot of these stations that they previously were doing well because they, they do diaries still, you know, where people uh, fill out a, a booklet with what they're listening to, when they're listening to it, how long they're listening to it, and then they write in comments and such. But, and they still do that, but they also now have this people meter, and, and they're finding out that stations like these Spanish stations don't get the ratings that everybody thought that they did. And they're finding out that some of these talk shows that had such huge ratings, they don't get some of the huge ratings that people thought they did either. And other shows too. And then certain kinds of stations are getting a lot higher ratings, like um, adult contemporary stations, AC, like uh, light stations, you know, um, they're getting a higher amount of people, uh, men listen to them a lot, which it was primarily thought to be a female demographic. But now they're finding out that men listen to uh, AC stations as well. Interesting, interesting, interesting. That's for sure. So, but for Rush, and then you have to fight through um, program directors and people that are always trying to micromanage the content of your show. You've got somebody that's sitting back there that's sitting on a delay button all the time just in case you say something wrong or just in case you say something that you don't think is bad, but they don't want to even take a chance with the FCC the way it is anymore. So you got somebody that might dump out what you have to say. Like earlier, when I said the S word, when I said shitty, that would be dumped out on, on terrestrial radio. I can say it here. I generally choose not to, but they'll say it. You know, people, you know, uh, if you if you try to, and I'm not even talking about that. If you, on radio, it's so weird, the the rate, the, the rules that you have to worry about. <laughs> I'm not even, one of these days, we'll have to have a discussion just about that, just about the weird FCC rules, what you can and can't say, how you can and can't say it. And then each company has their own policy too. And that's weird. 
And then he, but, but on the other hand, so I do give Rush respect for having the ability to get there and, and to make it work for him. But on the other hand, that show has got to be so easy. I mean, you have your prep that you come in and you do for a couple of hours. You have some sound bites that you line up. You, maybe you go back into your archives and you pull some old sound bites. Like, for example, today, when I was talking about Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, how they were having their secret meetings, their closed door meetings about getting these House and Senate bills lined up. Well, then what I would do is I'd pull number one. I'd bring out the soundbite where Barack Obama repeatedly talked about how this is going to be a transparent government. We're going to know what's going on at all times. And I would put that against what's happening now. And then I would go back and I would pull the clip of Nancy Pelosi from uh, last year or two years ago where she was talking about how this is the most ethical Congress ever. And I would play those against each other. That's how you do that kind of show that Rush does. It's not a hard show to do. And the way that he delivers it, even if you agree with Rush Limbaugh, you have, I know for me, if I, if, when I listen to him and I don't listen often, but I do listen sometimes when I listen, I find myself hating myself for, for agreeing with the guy because he has such a, just a delivery, a pump, a to which he says things. And he has such a way that to which he talks and he bloviates about it. Ladies and gentlemen, I, he takes half an hour to get out one sentence. Ladies and gentlemen, I just, I have to tell you about the most magnificent and wonderful, wondrous thing. He's such a wordsmith. He has to let you know the size and scope of his lexicon. Ladies and gentlemen, my lexicon uh, is at least 100 billion words, characters, and various other sounds that I'm able to make uh, on a regular basis. And that is why I am able to, ladies and gentlemen, host this program. He's always got to rattle that paper and pound on the desk and pound on the table. And it's, it just boggles the mind. And everything that he says, he says with such authority, ladies and gentlemen. And there's nothing wrong with speaking with authority be, to at least make it sound like you know what you're talking about, but just the constant capacity. And then takes phone. Larry, Larry in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You're on the EIB network. Hello to you, sir. You know, and God, it's just... I think about talk radio and I get so sad because there are there are guys that are in this business that have a lot of talent that just aren't given a chance. Guys like me are not ever given a chance. That's just not going to happen. Me, how I've always envisioned a talk show, this is the thing. And Rush Limbaugh, I don't know. I, it just bothers me to think of this guy as the talk show host of the decade, the radio personality, not even talk show, he's the radio personality of the decade. Really? You mean there's not one other radio personality you can think of? Maybe not a certain guy, I don't know, who had uh, a huge radio audience, number one in every market he was on in. He hosted a big-time syndicated morning show. He went to Satellite and brought, uh, God, 10 million listeners over there with him. I don't know, some, some guy, some Howard Stern guy. You might have heard of him, maybe. You might know who he is. Maybe that should be your radio personality of the decade. The guy only pioneered the damn medium. The guy only managed to take a satellite company which was struggling and on the brink of irrelevance and bring it to prominence. 
And you can sit here and say, well, you know, they haven't turned a profit. Well, gee, excuse him for not being the only... Listen, Sirius Satellite Radio, Sirius and XM, they merged. They had a big merger. The two companies finally merged. You know, Howard isn't all serious. He only brought 10 million people there. It's not his fault that Sirius doesn't know how to micromanage. It, it's not his fault that they, you know, that they took out such a substantial amount. They got into such a substantial financial strait to, to start up the company. You know, maybe they'll turn a profit and maybe they won't. All I know is that, to me, the guy is an innovator and a pioneer and guys like Rush Limbaugh, they do what a million other hosts do. The show that Rush Limbaugh does today is not the same show that he did in 1988 that got him the 600 stations. The show that he does now is a political rant fest. It's no different from, I can name 50 other shows that are on the left or the right or somewhere in the middle or whatever that do the exact same kind of show. And they all have different styles to them, but they're all ostensibly the same program. Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Tom Hartman, Randy Rhodes, that idiot Mike Malloy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mike Gallagher, all these people, they all do a similar kind of show. Yeah, they might have different views. Yeah, some might take more calls or some might take less calls or some might have more guests on. Yeah, okay, so they have a different, slightly different personality. But the show, the formatics of the show, is basically the same thing. And very few of these people, they all put on these radio voices. At least a lot of these guys, they put on these radio voices. They don't ever give you insight into their own personality or their own lives it's sort of just a, it's sort of a, a rant box, not even a rant box. It's, it's a, I don't know. It's just, it's not necessarily compelling radio. You know, and in some of these shows I do listen to, I listen to Glenn Beck. I, I listen more out of curiosity to see what other radio personalities are up to and what they're doing. I've, I've heard Glenn Beck. I've, I've heard all the local scrubs that are on in Phoenix. I listen to a lot of uh, guys from other markets. Uh, I listen to Bill Handel. I listen to, I mean, there's a lot of shows I listen to in different markets. Believe me, I spend a lot of time perusing around various dials in various markets and listening to various um, personalities, uh, syndicated, local, whatever. And very few of them are, are really that good. And that might be part of the problem with talk radio. There's only a few guys that are really pioneers in this business. Guys like Phil Hendry are a, are a big-time rarity. A guy that is truly about satire and parody and somebody that took an existing medium and really decided to screw with it. That's what I like about Phil Hendry. That's what I like about Howard Stern. That's what I like about some of these other guys. When I was a kid growing up, the reason I wanted to get into talk radio too, or the reason I wanted to get into radio, not necessarily just talk radio, but the reason I wanted to get into radio was because I heard a lot of these shows as a kid growing up and I always thought I could do better. I always heard, when I moved to Phoenix in 1982, I remember my grandma would listen to KTAR, okay? And they had Pat McMahon on there, who was, he was ancient back then. He still does radio today. Thank God they don't have him on regularly anymore. He's just on the weekends and stuff. And yeah, I'm sure Pat McMahon's a really, a hell of a nice guy. I bet he's the nicest guy you'll ever want to meet. 
But as a radio personality, he was boring back then, and he's a snooze fest today. And guys like that, what they do is they come on the radio. And, and back then, he would literally have a, 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 and I'm not, I swear to you, I swear on a stack of Bibles on my father's grave, I swear to you, he had on a vacuum cleaner salesman talking about different types of vacuums. I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was seven years old and he had some vacuum cleaner salesman on. He would have insurance salesmen and he would have the most boring people on his show. And that was what passed for talk radio in the, in the early and mid 80s. And then the other style of talk radio that was always on that I couldn't stand and that so many people still do today is what I like to call, what do you think? Give me a call radio. Here's what they do. This is what sucks about talk radio nowadays. And I've done this rant maybe a million times on my show. Guys will do a radio show and they, and they, um, they open up the hour with a, a brief sort of, well, I was uh, looking at the paper today and I saw that uh, 90% of women say that they don't call guys back after the, they go on the first date. They wait for the guy to call. What do you think about that? Give me a call. I mean, guys, what do you do? Do you call women back? Do you wait for them to call you? What do you do? Uh, women, what do you think about this? What do you think? Give me a call. Where they go, well, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid are having a, uh, they're having closed door meetings. What do you think this, uh, do, do you trust what's going on in our Congress? What do you think? Give me a call. And that's the worst kind of radio you can possibly do. It's It's horrible. Because number one, if it's a topic you're not interested in, they segment their their show so that in segment number one or in hour number one, we're going to talk about Congress. What do you think? Give me a call about Congress. And then hour number two, we're going to talk about dating. What do you think about dating? And if it's a topic that you're not interested in, then why would you listen for that entire hour? See, a talk show should really be a, a sort of a free-flowing, stream-of-consciousness, real kind of thing where people call in and, and talk about whatever. Yeah, I mean, okay, steer people maybe. If, you, if you're truly a compelling host, you don't have to throw out ridiculous questions and get people to call in and regurgitate a, a, an answer. If you're a good talk show host, people will just call in and want to talk about what you're talking about anyway. And then if somebody calls in and, and says something else on another topic, you should be able to be a capable host to be able to handle it in an appropriate way. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, though. I mean, this is what, and it's still done in this market today. It's still done by a lot of hosts. They go, this hour, we're going to talk about, um, and of course they do it on, uh, KTAR is the worst for that. But anyway, they do this all the time. It's It's just... Man, uh, this hour we're going to talk about... I know it sounds like the... T well, Tom Likas used to do that too. It just drove me crazy. People would get nationally syndicated shows and they do this. Oh, it was the worst. For me, and, and you know, the problem with that kind of... And people say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, if it works, why not? I mean, so many people have done it, Mike. Is it really that bad? And I say, yes, it's really that bad. It is really that bad. And here's why. Number one, if you don't like the topic for the hour, if the listener is turned off to the topic, they're going to tune out. Number two, there's only three types of phone calls you can get in that segment, okay, or in that style of talk radio. 
So if, let's say you have a topic that's like, what do you think? Socialized health care. What do you think about it? Did... Do you like do you, do you like this socialized the idea of socialized health care or not? So you're gonna get somebody that calls up. They're gonna all right, uh, what, Dale in Phoenix. What do you think? Well, uh, I really like this socialized health care. Uh, you know, I, I can't really afford none health insurance, so I really like the idea of uh, socialized health care. So I think it's good. All right, now uh, let's go over to Tony in Scottsdale. What do you think? Well, I'm pretty much against it because I don't want to see my uh, health care. I don't want to see my, my taxes go up to pay for health care, and uh, that's it, period. So I'm against it. And inevitably, there's the third type of caller to those segments that calls up and um, is it just goes off on some tangent that's just, you know. Well, uh, i tell you what, bud. You know, this, this is another example of the government that's trying to railroad us, and that this is uh, this is why we need a revolution in this country. This, this Obama, this abomination that we've got here. This is just this is just outrageous. I, I've had enough. I, I, I get you know what? I got my guns, in my truck. I'm gonna drive out there. I'm gonna overthrow this here government today. That's it. That's the end of it right now. I'm a, I'm a overthrow this here government. So that's the kind of calls that you get. So, and I've always been against that. To me, a good talk show, a, the the talk show that I've always wanted to do is is got a little bit of everything in it. It's got some bits. It's a host that can do some satire. I'm, listen, I'm not saying I'm the greatest or anything. I don't know. You know, I'm just doing a show. I'm just being me. I'm just being real. But I think good talk shows should be real. They should just be who they are. They shouldn't put on some phony voice. They shouldn't put on some phony persona. If you don't believe in something, you don't believe in it. If you believe in something, you believe in it. And you know what? Be passionate. Don't get on the air and be all sleepy about it. I don't, I don't mean put on a fake voice, though. I don't mean put up false energy, but I mean, don't be on the air and be a slouch and, and say, well, um, I saw today that uh, oil was up to $82 a barrel. Um, uh, you know, man, um, that's, listen, I don't know about this oil being an $82, but what are these, what's going on? You know, I, I thought we were going to get uh, lower, lower, fuel costs, but I guess maybe it's that cold winter that's driving up the price of oil. Could be. Could be the uh, the uh, Middle Eastern countries, the Arabs, you know, artificially sort of ratcheting up the price. Uh, that could be going... See, I don't... Those kind of shows to me, that's crap. When I hear shows like that, when I hear things going on that's like that, that to me is garbage. So, I don't know. I guess that's why I've just, I've never really cared for Rush Limbaugh though, because it's just a, a guy bloviating. And to me, it's, it's espousing all the views of the Republican party. It's, it's just a, a talking point memo. And again, I'm not even saying that I, I, I agree with some of the things that Rush Limbaugh has said, but I just always feel bad because it's just with such a, a it's just such a terrible delivery and just such a bad show to me. As a radio listener, but I respect the fact that he's been able to do. And listen, the guy got a four hundred million dollar contract. Okay, four hundred million dollars over four years or whatever it is was the last contract he signed. You know, good for him. God bless the guy for being able to do that. This is America. If somebody thinks you're worth four hundred million dollars, then you know what? Go out there and earn it. Go out there and get it. Good for you, buddy. 
I, I would never pay him that, but somebody felt that he was worth that kind of money. And he, if, if he brings in the type of revenue that they say he does just to the network alone, he brings in $50 million in revenue a year. Well, then I guess he's worth it. I guess, I, I guess. And I mean, local stations, they're paying big bucks for him too. So it's got to be worth it to somebody. I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's just something I've never been able to figure out, but radio personality of the decade. I don't know. I got to look up what their other uh, classifications for the decade were. Who the most interesting personalities or music groups or whatever. I got to look at this media week. Should go and look this up more. All right, some other story. Uh, this is mind-bending to me. Jeez, I don't even know if I want to talk about it today because I, this could be such a lengthy rant. This could be such a lengthy take to get into this. that I don't know if I even want to do this today. But here's the story. Where else would you expect this but from Europe? Specifically France. And I'm, I told you, and I, I should go look this up somewhere in the, in the ancient archives of the show. I made, I, we did a bit about something like this, I think back in 2002 or 2003. And I, in fact, I think we've done a couple bits about this over the years. Where I said one of these days, we're going to have laws against psychological abuse. Well, we're going to have laws against name calling and against, um, you know, saying mean things. And sure enough, sure enough, life imitates art. Check it out. France will become the first country in the world to ban psychological violence within marriage later this year. So if you're in a marriage and your spouse is psychologically abusing you, that can now be a crime punishable by fines and or jail time in France. And this is a real law. It's passed. It's due to take effect later this year. The new law, which would apply to cohabitating couples, not even married, but cohabitating couples, would see people getting criminal records for insulting their loved ones during domestic arguments. Electronic tagging would be used for repeat offenders. What does that even mean? So what, would you be, you be given an ankle bracelet? Would they, give you, would they put a recording device on you to be listening to see, oh, I don't know, I didn't like that tone. Man, are we getting closer to big brother government stepping in or what? You know that France and Europe, these are bellwether places. These are bellwether countries. What that means is as they go, so do we eventually. As they catch on over there, you know, the, the liberal types in this country are going to want to introduce that. You know, like people way out on the far left, they're going to want to introduce legislation like that here. Well, uh, you know, we think that because we're already in the political correctness zone here in this country. We already have political correctness taking over. So it's not that big of a leap to think that, you know, maybe, maybe somebody here will get the wild hair up their ass and go, you know, what a, this, is, this is a great idea. We could stop psychological abuse. Or we could turn into a completely emo society. We could do that. Anyway, electronic tagging would be used on repeat offenders, according to the country's prime minister, uh, okay. 
France. Who's this guy? Frank Francois Francos Fillin. Frank whatever. If it proves successful, it could be introduced in other European countries. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. But critics dismiss the measure as a gimmick, which would be impossible to implement. Well, of course. What are you going to do? How is somebody going to do this? Um, yeah, my husband, uh, he called me a bad name. What did he say? Well, when we were arguing the other day, he said, well, uh, I said, um, you know, you always leave your socks on the floor. And he said to me, well, you would say that because you're a slob, too. And it takes one to know one. So I want him put in jail for that. Well, we how do we know that he said that? Well, because I'm saying that he said it. Sir, did you say that? No, that's not exactly what I said. Well, did you say something about that? Well, she was talking about my socks being on the floor and she insinuated that I was a slob. Well, maybe we should put you both in jail. Why not? The law is particularly aimed at protecting women who currently suffer the most attacks of this kind. Really? Yeah, because we all know that there's never been a woman that's nagged her husband and called her husband names. We all know that there's never been psychological abuse going the other way. Hey, why not, while we're at it, why don't we cover passive-aggressive behavior where a woman in a relationship acts passive-aggressively? I love how, this is protecting women. Really? So... Women are always the victim. According to this, women are, this is intended because women are the victim of psychological abuse. Give me a break. What a bunch of, of course France would come up with this. They're such pansies that they can't even handle what people normally do. And listen, I'm not saying that psychological abuse doesn't exist. I'm not saying that it's not real. I'm not saying that it's not a problem. But you can't turn everything into a crime. People have to be adults and people have to be able to work out their differences. You can't have the law step in and say, he called me a bad name, officer. What are you going to have? The, the, the name calling police? What are you going to have? The, the psychological police come in and take control? I'm telling you, we, we're getting closer to that kind of thing. You talk about police state. Protecting women. Oh, that's my husband. He's... You know, that's just how he is. Ha ha. You know how the hens cackle about and they, they talk about their husbands. They, they bitch about their boyfriends. Oh, I love how it's aimed at protecting women only because, yeah, that's, that's who's always the victim. Guys are never the victims of, uh, of uh, any kind of psychological abuse in a relationship. It never happens. No. Give me a physical break. I'm going to read the the entirety of this sentence is almost enough for me to just throw this microphone across the room. Just pick it up, pick it up off its mount and just huck it across the room. Listen to how this is worded. The law is particularly aimed at protecting women who currently suffer the worst attacks of this kind, ranging from offhand comments about their appearance to threats of physical violence. Now listen, threats of physical violence, that can almost that's almost an actual bona fide crime, okay? So let's let's not go to the extreme here. Offhand comments about their appearance. Women make that about their guys too. Well, you know, you don't have as much hair as you used to. Ha 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 ha. You're not as young as you used to be, honey. Ha 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 ha. Well, that shirt makes you look fat, honey. Ha 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 ha. People make offhand comments in relationships. 
You're going to make that a crime? Well, you made an offhand comment. What is that going to be punishable by what? What would, she, what would she do? 30 days in jail for an offhand comment? If it's a direct insult, 90 days in jail? If it's a comment about somebody's weight, what's that going to be? Two months, 120 days maybe? What do we do? I'll tell you, how do we set this law up? Mr. Fillin said, quote, it's an important step toward the creation of, oh my God, it's an, it's an important step forward as the creation of this offense will allow us to deal with the most insidious situations, situations that leave no visible scars, but which leave victims torn up inside. Well, I had some people say some pretty horrible things to me this past year. I had some people do some pretty bad things to me psychologically. God, I'd love to see them locked up. Why not? Give me a break. I'm to move to France. Well, uh, I hate to tell you, but, you know, I... Uh, well, anyway. Uh, <laughs> he added... He added that his government would also be experimenting with electronic surveillance measures to, quote, monitor effectiveness of restraining orders against a violent spouse. And here's the best. Psychologist Anne Gerard said uh, that squabbling couples will allege all kinds of things about each other, but they won't necessarily be true. That's my point. Well, he called me a bad name, officer. All right, let's go and arrest him. Did you call her a vet? No, I didn't. Oh, well, that changes everything. How do you substantiate this? Isn't this just going to be a waste of time for police and for law enforcement and for a court system that could be spent on, I don't know, real crimes? Maybe. A TV advertising campaign was used last year to try and highlight domestic violence in France. It showed a husband who regularly insults his wife, leaving her mentally traumatized. Well, of course it showed a husband insulting the wife because it's always the man that's insulting the woman and putting the woman down. We all know that. We all know that it's the men that are the evil people in the relationship and that they're the only ones that are capable of being the abusers, physically or psychologically. We all know that that's, that's the way it always goes down. Thank you, France. Thank you for giving us... Reason number, let me see here. Hold on, let me, let's see. Oh, I got to get this out here. Carry the seven. Thank you for giving us reason number 1,624,291 to hate you. Good God. So I would be very worried about this. This could be coming to America or at least a, another European nation near you at some point. <laughs> Honest to God. Really? Wow. So you could be put in jail. You insult somebody. That's 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 a jailing. Unreal. Thanks, France. Thanks for nothing. All right, coming up, segment number three, the final segment for today's program. I told you this could be a long show. It's we're already over an hour. If uh, if I'm doing my math correctly, yeah, it looks like we're over an hour already. Alright. It's Michael Groff in exile. Coming back. It's all 
I love this tune. Third and final segment of Michael Graff in Exile for a Tuesday, January 5th, 2010. So far, I haven't screwed up and said 2009. Not yet. Soon, I'm sure. couple of uh, pretty interesting stories. Mike at KMGX.com, by the way, our email address. You can also contact me for the more instant gratification Michael Groff Show, AOL Instant Messenger. If you like the podcast, then spread the word. Make it viral. That's the cool hip term for spreading stuff around the internet, saying viral, which I think would be appropriate for this show. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely something that would probably make you sick. All right, so a couple of kind of bizarre stories. First of all, a man used a large rock to rob a Bellingham shoe store over the weekend, according to Bellingham police. The man, this is what happened. A guy walks into the Red Wing shoe store. On 117 Telegraph Road, about 4 p.m. Saturday, the employee was closing the store for the day, and then this guy, this genius uh, criminal, walks up and says, this is a robbery. Employee turns around, he's probably like, what? Uh, oh, man, come on. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to close up. I'm trying to leave here, man. Could, couldn't you have robbed the store at a more convenient time? So this guy, uh, yeah, he comes in there. He goes to rob the place, and um, he's got a rock. He held the rock over the victim's head. The man took an undisclosed amount of cash and walked out. Now, of course, had this guy had some paper in his pocket, this would have been easily averted. But anyway, uh, on a serious note, the I, I guess, what, you couldn't run away? The guy had a rock over your head? Listen, I'm sure the guy gets paid like $8 an hour. And he's like, ah, all right. You know what, man? Just take whatever you want out of the register. Just, you know, just go ahead. Police were alerted to the robbery by a witness who was in the store's parking lot. Within five minutes of receiving the 911 call, several Bellingham police officers found and arrested a suspect. The suspect, 28, was booked into the Whatcom County Jail for investigation of first-degree robbery and possession of a controlled substance. What was that, a giant crack rock he was holding over the guy's head? Anyway, uh, the money taken from the robbery, of course, was recovered, police said. Well, that's, listen, that's some good news. I was, was worried about that. All right, and then there's this. And this is an example of a judge that is a little bit out of control. And this is an example, uh, if you're, if you're going to spend all the time to go into law school and you're going to spend all the time that it takes and all the dedication that it takes necessary to become a judge, might want to really think about your policies and your practices in your courtroom. This is from uh, Dixon County, Tennessee, where a judge, a Dixon County judge, had a spectator pulled out of the courtroom and held 
He was taken away by officers on a hunch that um, he may uh, that he should submit to a urinalysis for drugs. So this judge, he was sitting there and he thought that one of the guys that was in the courtroom, just somebody that's a spectator, not one of the not one of the litigants, not one of the attorneys, but somebody that was there um, supporting one of the litigants, somebody in in the jury box or somebody in the um, in, in in you know spectating. I uh, he said, "Hey man, uh, I think you might be on drugs." Officers take him away. The man, uh, let's see here. Uh, this is according to a claim filed now in federal court. Benjamin Merchant claims that General Sessions Judge Durwood Moore admitted that he quote routinely drug screens spectators in his courtroom if he quote thinks they may be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Moore allegedly called this the routine policy of the court. Merchant says that he was in Moore's courtroom supporting a friend when Moore ordered officers to take him into custody. They grabbed Merchant, allegedly without any evidence of illegal behavior, and then took him to a different place in the courthouse where he was made to submit to a drug screen urinalysis. He was then released from custody when the results came back negative. In response to Merchant's judicial ethics complaint, Moore allegedly said that the uh, that plucking sus uh, suspicious spectators from the courtroom and screening them is part of the routine policy of the court. Moore acknowledged that he had violated Merchant's rights and was censured by the Tennessee Supreme Court's judi Judiciary Court on May 1st, 2009. So he was this judge. This judge takes a guy in his own courtroom and decides that he might be on drugs, so he has him screened. Of course, it turns out negative. So then the Tennessee Supreme Court's Judiciary Court hears about this, and they censure the guy. And what that means to be censured is, is if you're a judge and you're brought before these people and they censure you, that's just a bunch of people yelling at you in a courtroom. That's just a bunch of people sitting around and yelling at you saying, you did wrong. You did a bad thing. It's like they all gave him a very stern, sharp talking to. Don't ever do that again. That was really bad. Why not remove the guy from the bench? I mean, you had somebody that's supposed to adjudicate over cases, that's supposed to understand the law. He's supposed to... See, the, the role of, the, of a judge is to interpret the law, not make their own or not decide uh, what they're going to just selectively do. This is a person that should, of, of all things, they should know the United States Constitution. You can't just take somebody without probable cause and drug screen them. You just can't do it. Not in a, not in a federal courtroom. And the officers that took this guy, I mean, I understand that they're just following a judge's orders. If they don't, they they could be held in contempt at the court. But I mean, somebody, I mean, why would you be a willing participant in that? That's outrageous. The court ordered Moore to, quote, never violate a person's constitutional rights as he did to the plaintiff. Merchant also sued the officers who took him into custody, stating, quote, only a plainly incompetent officer or a knowing participant would have taken play would have taken place in such unlawful and unconstitutional procedures. So this guy that was taken out of the courtroom is now he's suing the judge. 
He's suing the police officers that took him into custody. He's probably going to sue the state. He's probably he's going to sue everybody that he possibly can. And, you know, he's going to get something out of it. Now, honestly, what are his damages? Do you really think he has a case here? Do you really think that he should be suing these people? I mean, yeah, his civil rights were violated. Yeah, what happened to him is wrong, but what are his damages? Aside from some humiliation, he did have to pee into a cup. He, uh, you know, uh, he was probably held against his will for several hours. That's got to be worth something to the guy, but uh, uh, he's probably going to get millions out of this. Millions. In Merchant's view, quote, the facts of the case are not subject to dispute or else the defendant, Derwood Moore, uh, would have disputed them when his career as a judge was in jeopardy. He wants punitive damages for denial of his due process rights, outrageous conduct, violation of the Tennessee Human Rights Act, assault and battery, and false imprisonment. And you know, he's probably going to get quite a bit for it. Well, so that's that's the wacky judge of the day right there. What a what a tool. Sorry, if you're going to be in my courtroom, I'm going to have you uh, submit to a, a drug screen. You look like you might have done some drugs today. You look like you could be on booze. Well, I'm not. Yeah, well, you know what? We're just going to see officers. Take them away. <laughs> absolute power, huh? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. All right. Well, uh, this is that's a guy that's going to get a lot. I, I can't wait to see what the final verdict on that is. That guy is he's going to he's going to own half the state of Tennessee by the time this thing's all done. Yeah, they'll make him a judge. That I mean, I'm listen. And again, I'm not even saying that it's a bad thing, uh, you know, that that the guy sues. I just I just wonder exactly what are his damages? What is he going to get out of it? How much money do you think he's going to get out of this whole thing? It's got to be pretty extensive, don't you think? That's my theory anyway. He's he's going to get quite a bit of dough out of this. A jury. A jury of his peers is going to probably award this guy no less than $300,000. I guarantee it. All right. Um, tomorrow, we got to talk about this. Randy Johnson retiring from baseball after 22 years in the bigs. Of course, uh, he threw a perfect game. He won the world championship uh, with the Diamondbacks in 2001. Five Cy Young Awards, 10-time All-Star, 303 wins, a surefire, first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the best pitchers ever. It's sad. I feel old. I really do. I mean, I've seen most of the guy's career, basically. Man, I have so many memories, too. Randy jo especially Randy Johnson hitting in a, in a spring training game, throwing that 95-mile-an-hour fastball, and, and it hit a dove. Oh. Hit a bird. Randy is still upset about that to this day. Awesome. All right, look, uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Another edition of Michael Graff in Exile will come your way then. Thank you for checking out the podcast. Spread the word. Get it out there. Please, let's, uh, 
Let's keep this thing going or something. Mike at KMGX.com, the email address. Michael Graff Show, AOL Instant Messenger. Check us out on the Facebook. Check us out on MichaelGraff.com. That's where all the contact information is. It's Michael Graff in exile. Have a great night, everybody. Hey.